Would you please remain standing and pray with me? Our Father in heaven, would you help us to look to the Son this morning, the anointed Son of God who have you sent to die and rise again and raise us to new life in him. Lord, we put our confidence in all kinds of things. Uh, we put our confidence in pastors and churches, in security, uh, in our jobs, in our wives, uh, in our children. God, would you help us to have confidence in you this morning? You are the only one who can deliver us. You are the only one who can save this morning. So, Lord, would your, would your name be exalted this morning? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you be the center of this worship service, uh, of this sermon this morning, God. We give you all the glory and praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This is the summer of anthropology at Christ Church. Man, I miss, I was at Louisville Parish last week. I didn't hear any whoops when I was playing guitar. So anthropology is just a fancy word that answers the question, what does it mean to be a human being? Was humanity formed or created, or is humanity simply the result of random natural processes? So not only is anthropology about looking back, last week Father Ben began to look forward to look forward, what is the end goal of humanity? What is the result? And we were created, past tense, right? We were created in the image of Jesus, the perfect human being, and he is recreating us. He's conforming us into the image of Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to look back and then look forward again. What is the goal of humanity? What shall we become? This, this morning is all about apocalyptic anthropology, right? What is the end? What is the end of humanity? What are we to become? Now, you might have noticed lately that Father Ben and I have said a lot about stories. The Bible is mostly stories, God knows that we live and breathe story because that's how he made us, right? And this is not children's Bible stories, okay? This is, this is true stories about little shepherd boys who crushed the skull of a giant and then cut off his head, okay? This is real life. My boys are living a story. Unfortunately, that story is about ninjas, and I play the part of the bad guy that they are constantly trying to defeat they are living a story we human beings use stories to interpret the world around us we live in a day when romantic comedies are no longer comedies PBS kids shows interpret the world through a godless story superhero movies are no longer uplifting stories our stories are shaped by global catastrophe and dark clouds, gloom and despair. And this is the liturgy of our culture. Watch the horror stories on the evening news or read about it on Twitter all day, right? And then, and then go watch the stories about 
fornicating kings playing games on their thrones, then repeat, right? That's where we're stuck right now. And these are not rambling thoughts about stories. Let me give you an example. Next time you're watching the television, right, the television that's live, that has commercials, close your eyes when the drug commercial comes on and listen to that. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. It's a list of all the worst things you can think of. But if you open your eyes and you look at the picture, right, if you look at the image, the experience, the story is what compels us to ask our doctor if this drug is right for me, as if we have any idea if this drug is right for me. We do not interpret the world through systematic theology, okay? We, we don't, our, even our secular neighbors, they don't, they don't interpret the world through a scientific, empirical, laboratory study. We live in a story and we interpret our lives through stories. And so to be a human being is to be part of a story, to tell stories over and over again, and to hear stories over and over again. So I might sound like a broken record, okay? Uh, no apologies, though. Uh, the story, the story shapes us, okay? So here, here's part of the broken record. The story of the Bible <laughs> It begins with creation. On the sixth day of creation, God created mankind in his image, and he placed them in a garden, in a home, in a home. I've been thinking a lot about home this week as I've been flying across the country and driving across the country to move my parents here to North Carolina. Woo, woo. Um, <laughs> thinking a lot about home. What does it mean to be at home? To be at home is not really about a place. See if you can finish this sentence. Home is... Yeah, there you go. Home is where the heart is. Home is where we are fully known. Where we're honored and respected and loved. Where we're secure. Home is the place where we are at peace in our relationships. This is the place that every human being longs to be. All humanity desires to be at home, but to be fully human, because we were created in the image of God to be with him, to be fully human, we must be in proper relationship to God, with God. My two-year-old is in proper relationship with me, when she listens to my voice and obeys. Her orientation to daddy is life-giving, not only for her, but for me. See, mankind was created to live in humble submission to God, oriented upwards to God, underneath him. This is what we do when we bow in confession every week, right? Father Ben stands above us as a representative of God. We're not bowing to a man. We're bowing to God. In other words, we can only be at home in this world if we are underneath God, if we put no other gods before him. Okay, so this might sound like a simple observation, but this positioning, this orientation, this submission is the central battle of the Christian life every day. If we are oriented towards God in humble submission, then everything changes. Our posture toward the world changes. We start to become more and more humble to our neighbors. 
Every relationship we have, whether with our wife or our greatest enemy, with humility before God, every relationship begins to be transformed and becomes life-giving. But the story of man continues after the garden. Humanity broke relationship with God, and he cast them out of the garden. They were no longer home. Relationship was broken. Men and women put themselves over God, right? Their orientation changed. Honor was traded for shame. Respect and love were lost. And since that day, every person is wandering in exile is wandering in exile. So let me hit the pause button for a second. Uh, What is exile? This is a churchy word, okay? What is exile? Exile is the experience of being forced to live in a place that is not your home. Is the the experience of being forced to live in a place that is not your home. You are in exile in a fallen world, but this is not a victim narrative. Hear me, this is really important. This is not a victim narrative. Exile is not centrally about losing political power or cultural influence. You are in exile in this world because you are a part of the Christian story. Your identity as an exile has nothing to do with post-Christian America, with a feeling of loss of power. The Christian story that you live in is much bigger than this historical moment. It's bigger than Babylon or Washington, D.C. See, all humanity, every single anthropos is in a strange land. So, if you find yourself interpreting this world with a story of the loss of cultural superiority or the story of being a religious minority centrally, then you are living in a different story. If you're like me and you find yourself consumed by anxiety trying to write a sermon, fill in the blank for whatever your vocation is, then you are looking at the world through the wrong story. After our fall from grace, here is our present reality. Every man and woman is disoriented in this world. As human beings... We were created to flourish when we were properly oriented to God in humility. But just like my beautiful little two-year-old, we don't want to be oriented to daddy in humility. We want to rule the house. God is not the center anymore. We are the center. And so the story continues. Immediately after exile from the garden, we build the Tower of Babel. We want the security we had before the fall, but, and this is a big but, we want to build our own home apart from God. Abraham, here's the story, Abraham was never settled. Israel was exiled in Egypt. And even after they were delivered from exile, where did they spend their time? Wandering. In the wilderness for 40 years. The story of humanity, the whole Bible, is a story of homeless people, okay? After all of their wanderings, God's people briefly inhabit the promised land, but no place, no person in this fallen world can satisfy what we were created for. Instead of hoping hoping in God, 
They put their hope in a place, in this world, in wayward kings. And again, they were besieged by a foreign king and taken into exile, into Babylon. Exile again. So the true story of humanity is that we are unsettled in this world. We are all in exile. And so this present fallen world is not our home. Now, remember with me again. Remember with me again. To be at home is not really about a place. Okay? Home is where we are fully known. Where we are honored and respected and loved and secure. So home is the place where we are at peace in our relationships. And the Christian story is fundamentally the first relationship. Right, that establishes security in our lives and in our souls is our relationship to God. We were created in his image to be in perfect communion with him. Okay, so we're not at home. You got that? We're, we're not at peace. Does anybody need me to tell you that? All right, we're not at peace. So where do I fit in this fallen world? Right? Where do I fit right now? What should my orientation be as a human being in exile? So to answer this question, I want to tell the story of Daniel. All right? So the story of Daniel is really a story of two competing orientations to God. Okay, Two competing orientations to God. And the story of Daniel, at least the first four chapters, is not really centrally about Daniel, okay? So next week, part two, stay tuned. Next week, I'm going to talk about Daniel and his companions, okay? This week, we're going to focus on King Nebuchadnezzar, on King Nebuchadnezzar. So if you will, open your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 1, and it's page 737. We are going to look at the story of this pagan Babylonian king, King Nebuchadnezzar. Page 737 in your Bibles. Uh, I'm going to call him Nebi. Does that sound, is that okay for you? Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, we could call him Chad. I don't really know. I'm going to call him Nebi, King Nebi, okay? So in the third year of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, we're introduced to this guy named Nebuchadnezzar, right? So if you know your Bible, uh, Jeremiah chapter 39 makes pretty clear that Nebuchadnezzar is not a good dude. When he went into Jerusalem, he, he, he not only slaughtered the king's family right in front of his face, all of his children right in front of his face, right after that he poked out his eyes, okay? So that was the last thing he saw before he was carried into exile, all right, so this is Nebuchadnezzar. He's not a good dude. He went into the temple. He went into the temple and he took all of God's stuff and he made it about himself. Okay, so fast forward to chapter two. Here is a guy, this pagan guy who has everything, who has all that he could ever imagine, but yet he is very angsty. Right? He can't even sleep. Does this sound like our story? Right? We have everything that we could desire in the world. We're sitting at the top of the world, and yet we're filled with 
despair and angst and anxiety all the time. And so Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He has a, he has a dream in Daniel chapter 2. And this dream is about a statue, right? So this, this is a statue that is made out of four materials. And one day this statue is going to be crushed, okay? So he goes to the wise men of Babylon and he says... I want you to tell me what my dream means, but I'm not going to tell you the dream. And they're like, no one can do this, okay? you got to tell us the dream first, king, so we can make something up, all right? Yeah. But, and no matter how many times they appeal in the story, he says no, no. And so he's pretty upset about that. He's a pretty angsty, horrible dude, okay? Nebuchadnezzar... Then says, all right, kill all of my wise men. I'll make some new wise men. And as that decree makes its way down to Daniel and his companions, who are now adopted into this wise men household, Daniel says, hold up. Stop. Yeah, I, I don't really want to die, okay? Pause for just a second. And what he does is then he goes before the God of heaven with his companions, and God gives him the dream. God gives him the dream, and not only that, the interpretation of the dream. And so he goes before Nebuchadnezzar. He goes before this, this crazy, self-centered, pagan king, and he tells him the dream. Okay, and what is the dream? It's a story about a statue made of four different kinds of metal, and this statue is crushed into pieces. Okay, It's crushed into pieces by, by the kingdom of God. Right? By the God of heaven, the true God of heaven. And so if this statue does not humble himself before God, right, he's going to be crushed. And so what is Nebuchadnezzar's response to this? Well, first his response is, wow, wow, he told me my dream. I didn't even tell him that. That's pretty cool, okay? So clearly he's on God's side, this guy, Daniel. And so what Nebuchadnezzar does is he humbles himself before Daniel at this point in the story. What does he give to Daniel? He gives him, he gives him rulership over all of Babylon. He's not, only, he's not only the little teenage Jewish exile in his, in his court of wise men. Now he's over those guys as well. And those guys were not really happy about that. Surprise, surprise. A kid comes in and does your job for you. You think you'd be grateful that you're still alive, but they're not. So how does the story continue, right? The story of Nebuchadnezzar continues in chapter 3. And this is a really familiar story. What happens? Nebuchadnezzar, after just having a dream about a statue that is crushed by the God of heaven, he builds a statue made of gold, all right? He builds a statue made of gold, and he says, everyone needs to bow down to this statue. And who are those guys, right? Mishael, Hananiah, Azariah. I, I didn't know there's names till this week, because their names were changed. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? If you've watched uh, Veggie Tales, or uh, if, if you've heard this story your whole life, that's those guys' names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But that's, their, that's their pagan name. Okay, And so these guys, they don't bow down to this image. They don't bow down to the image, and they are sent where? Into the fiery furnace, okay? And in this furnace, it, it looks like there's appearance of this man with them, right? So four guys in a furnace. Nebuchadnezzar is astonished that they're not burned up. Okay, so they come out of this. They come out of this fiery furnace, and Nebuchadnezzar is like, 
all right, I'm a stubborn dude. I'm a stubborn dude, but clearly the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the true God, okay? So he goes a step further towards humility before God, but he's still at a distance, okay? So if Daniel is is below God, he's underneath the God of heaven, all right? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are underneath the God of heaven. First, Nebuchadnezzar humbles himself before Daniel. He acknowledges him, okay? And this is a good place for pagan governments to be. It's a good place for governments to acknowledge the virtues and the goodness of Christians and their society, okay? But it's not enough, okay? And then he acknowledges the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So it's not just about these guys now and humility before these guys. It's acknowledgement of their God. But what does he do in the story, right? What does he do right after that? He says, all right, stop bowing down to that golden image that I just made. I'm going to listen for a second. Now you have to bow down to that God or I'm going to tear you limb from limb. All right, this, this is maybe better a little bit. <laughs> this is a little bit better, but he still does not get it, right? His, his idea is about power and authority and dominion and taking control for himself. And this is evidenced right after this story, right? Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, he goes up onto the top of his kingdom and he looks out over all of it. And what does he say? He says, Look at all these things that are mine. God gave them to me, right? God gave them to me. He's acknowledging that now. But they're all mine. And he even sings this true song, right? It sounds a lot like the song that we just sang, Mighty to Save. Our God is mighty to save. He's mighty to save. He sings this true song, and yet he's still filled with anxiety. And so he, ha- he can't sleep again. He has another dream. And the, the end of this dream as well is that this tree that goes over all of the earth is cut down. Right? Daniel interprets the dream for him again. And Nebuchadnezzar is like, all right, I, I have everything un- under control myself. Right? So fast forward just a few days. And Nebuchadnezzar is walking through everything. It's still all about himself. And God says, you don't get it. You don't get it. And then he becomes a beast. Nebuchadnezzar becomes a beast. And that is the end of the story of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. Okay. Here's the thing. When we read the story of Daniel, we very quickly identify ourselves as Daniel, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as the faithful ones. But if we're honest with ourselves, right, if we're honest with ourselves, we are the pagan Gentile who has everything, right, who has a passing, a passing acknowledgement of God, even sings the songs correctly, but it's still fundamentally all about me. Our orientation to God has not changed. This is the story of Nebuchadnezzar, and this is my story. This is the story of a stubborn and prideful humanity. All right? So that's really depressing. (laughs) That's really depressing. So what? So how is the story of Nebuchadnezzar 
good news? How is it gospel for you and for me? Daniel chapter 2 and verse 35. Daniel interprets the dream. He interprets the dream. And this is the dream about the statue. The statue that is crushed. And what does it say in Daniel 2.35? The statue is broken into pieces. Psalm 2, which we just read this morning. What is the anointed son going to do when the Lord gives him the whole earth? Right? He's going to crush the wicked and dash them into pieces. Continuing in Daniel 2, verse 35, Nebuchadnezzar's crushed statue becomes like the chaff that the wind blows away. Psalm chapter 1, when we heard this last week, we, sang, we, we said this last week in this service, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. This man is not carried away, Psalm chapter 1, like the wicked who are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Continuing in Daniel 2.35 again. The stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And as our psalm, Psalm 2, concluded today, blessed are all who take refuge in the Son. Blessed are all who take refuge in the Son. You see, just like the story of Daniel, the story of the whole Bible begins with exile from the garden, and the story of the Bible ends with the final return from exile, with the anointed Son of God from, from Psalm 1 and 2, reconciling humanity to restored relationship with God. All right? So the goal of humanity is not to go back to the innocent garden. It's not even to go to my perfectly heavenly vacation home. The good news of Jesus Christ is not let's get back to the glory days. There is no going back. The Son of God, Jesus Christ the Anthropos, is the only one who can deliver us from exile. He was the only human being ever to be oriented to God properly, in humility before God. He was the only one who did that from start to finish. He comes to deliver us from exile. But again, not from exile in Babylon or exile in Egypt or post-Christian America. Christ has come to deliver us from the exile of separation from God. Separation from God. The exile from his heavenly home where he restores honor and respect and love and security where we are at peace in his presence. Daniel chapter 4, 34, and verse 34. This is the postscript to the story of Nebuchadnezzar. For us, me, disoriented and beastly people, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven as a beast out in the field. 
And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. And He sings this song, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? And at the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. This is the center of the book of Daniel. This is the center of our story. We are prideful, and we live as if we are over God. And he has to. Because of the Son. Only Jesus, the anointed Son, the human one, can bring us back home. Jesus came to break us. Jesus came to crush our pride and to resurrect our beastly, disoriented lives and make us humble kings in his kingdom, to make us alive together in him so that we may enter into his loving presence, into the eternally secure presence of God that we were created for. And so this morning, we praise the God of heaven. We praise the anointed son, the human one, the only one who was ever oriented to God with humility, who died and rose again for us. And we praise the Holy Spirit who has, who has regenerated us, who has brought us to new life in him and healed these beastly and broken bodies and has oriented us to God in humility again. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you that you see us like wandering beasts that we are in a field, completely stubborn and not acknowledging your power and your glory, but living for ourselves. And we thank you that the good news of the gospel the good news of Daniel is that the anointed son is the one who is going to come and crush us and raise us to new life. He's going to crush our pride and raise us to new life in him so that we can live with humility before you, God, so we can go back home. Lord, we need you to make that happen this morning. We cast ourselves upon your mercy this morning, the mercy of the Son, the patience of the Father, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand and join me.